Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violet Podcast. This week we'll be looking at one of the major political issues of our time, certainly in the United Kingdom, immigration. Now, migration in general is a massive topic, so we'll specifically be looking at immigration to the United Kingdom and its economic and political or cultural impacts. This is a huge topic and we did our best to squeeze as much as we could into an hour, but there are plenty of things that we've loved to have said that we didn't have time to. So if there's anything else that you'd like to know or any comments that you'd like to make, please do get in touch with us. You can use Twitter. Our handle is at underscore the violet underscore. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com or you can visit our website www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening. It's becoming the stereotype and the style of the Violet that regardless of what we're talking about each week, we start off with a history of it. But I do think it's important, uh, partly so that history students and professors and, and boffs can, can feel relevant, um, but partly so we realise that these, what we think of as modern problems that have suddenly come about um, in the last few years, are actually things that have stretched back throughout history. And there's an extraordinary number of, of lessons we can learn, not just from what's going on at the moment, but from what has happened in history as well. For example, I think a lot of our listeners were surprised to find out in the vaccinations episode that the anti-vax movement is hundreds of years old. And opposition to immigration and worries about the effects of immigration to the United Kingdom fits into this category as well. We might think of it as a 20th or 21st century phenomenon, but actually this is something that's been happening for thousands of years. So to start on a more optimistic note, um a Greek historian slash traveller slash everything as they were at that time, Pythias, 320 BC, um, travelled to the British Isles and commented that the inhabitants were especially friendly to strangers. Um, and this is something that seems to have been borne out in the, in the, uh, the following decades and centuries. Um, there is no really pure English or British identity now or, or ever. Um, you first have the, the Celts travelling there from Central Europe and the Bretons and loads of other fractured tribes who have no cohesive national identity. Then you have a Roman invasion and then there is something of a cohesive Breton identity uh, in opposition to the Roman invasion. Then you get the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, uh, the Norse, the Danes, um, and eventually the, the Norman invasion of, of England in 1066. Um, and out of this, you, you do start to get an English identity which is built up of all of these overlapping layers of, of immigration uh, but it's not something that springs out of the ground preformed, uh, and it's not something which has any kind of inherent quality. It continues to evolve over the next millennium uh, but alongside increasing waves of immigration and assimilation you also get a lot of animosity to newcomers. Uh, between the 11th and the 13th century, this animosity is generally directed to the Jewish population, uh, which emigrates um, as a response to pogroms in, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and eventually the Jewish population is massacred or expelled from the country, uh, with about 15,000 deported. In the 14th century, the animosity is directed at Italians and, and Flemish people uh, who emigrated to the country to fill an employment niche after the Black Death decimated the country's population. Uh, following that, there is um, anti-immigration sentiment directed at gypsies, uh, Huguenots. In the late 1500s, 
uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, commented that there were diverse Blackamoors in the country, already here too many, uh, and at this time there were only about a thousand nationally. Then the hatred is directed at the Protestants again, and then at the Irish, um, and at the Irish there were all kinds of accusations levelled, like they were responsible for crime and overcrowding and squalor and immorality and a general decline in the quality of British life in the late 19th century and the early 20th century as pogroms against Jews uh, became more common in the Russian Empire. Around 200,000 Jews emigrated to the east end of London and again uh, there was opposition to that immigration. Uh, Colum, the MP for Bow at the time, commented that England had become a pit for the refuse population of the world. So really there are two points to draw out of this. The first is that there is no such thing as a pure English identity. Of course, there is such a thing as an English or a British identity, but it's not something which is fixed in place. It's something that evolves over time. And as groups migrate to the country and add their own cultural understandings and lifestyles, uh, the fabric of what the country and the national identity is continues to change. Um, fish and chips, for example, being a very famous stalwart of British cuisine is, is from Portuguese Jews. Uh, the second point to draw out of this is that although uh, England and Britain more widely has a long history of newcomers forming a part of an evolving English identity, there is an equally long history of animosity towards newcomers and migrants and a feeling that the immigrants are, are here to steal our jobs uh, and take over our culture and destroy our way of life. Or to rephrase those two points slightly, first we need to abandon this sort of dichotomy between indigenous people uh, to whom the land belongs, who've always been there, and newcomers. Uh, in most parts of the world that is true, in, in all of the world really that is true, but in Britain it is especially true that even if you think of yourself as 100% English, well, the English identity only exists because it's been constantly updated with, um, and you had the list there, lots and lots of different ethnic groups over time. And secondly, immigration worries are a classic example of a sort of doomsaying, apocalyptic uh, mood that throughout history people have predicted is going to destroy things. Uh, it's going to destroy Britain. Britain will be ruined, will be overcrowded, there'll be no room, there'll be no jobs. Uh, and this is not a new worry that this might happen in the next 10 years or so. This is a worry that's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands. And guess what? Britain's not overcrowded. There are still jobs. Um, the world has not come to an end. We have not sunk into the sea under the weight of the population. Um, and yet these worries still exist. And it's worth pointing out that the reason I stopped in the early 20th century in this potted history of immigration to the UK is to point out that the history of immigration and the history of animosity to immigration is what we might call a pre-racial issue. A lot of opposition to immigration to the UK is focused on the idea that, that people from other parts of the world or other races or other cultures are, are coming here and are polluting what is a, a pure English or British identity. Um, and the Potter's history previously was to point out that people who are Western European, white, Christian, uh, for, for the most part, although there have of course been other groups, were, were very much opposed uh, by those that were in Britain at the time as outsiders. So this is not a problem that suddenly comes about uh, as a result of um, anti-non-white racism. Uh, it is important though to point out that in the latter half of the 20th century, immigration notably changes character. Uh, and immigration to the UK is characterised by immigration from 
uh, newly liberated or newly independent colonies or former colonies of the United Kingdom, uh, such as from the Caribbean with the, the Windrush generation or from the subcontinent, uh, from Pakistan, India, uh, and later from uh, a newly independent Bangladesh, from East Africa, uh, and from Britain's African colonies more generally. So the character of migration, uh, you could say, changes in the latter half of the 20th century in terms of where migrants are coming from. Uh, but it's important to remember that the unwillingness to accept new migrants is something that doesn't suddenly come about when migrants arrive from the Caribbean, from Africa, uh, from Asia. It's something that predates that post-imperial uh, wave of migration. The other significant difference about immigration to the UK in the latter half of the 20th century is its scale. So prior to the 1950s, the population or the percentage of the population of the UK that was born abroad only once dipped slightly above 2%, but mostly stayed below 2%. Since the 1950s, it has steadily been rising, uh, and now, or at least in 2019, which uh, is the latest figures, 14% of the population of the UK was not born in the UK. Uh, that's about 9.5 million people. You probably know the stats a lot better than me here, but in the, in the kind of period you were talking about where it's hovering around 2%, uh, I definitely know that in Elizabethan England, it was around 10% in London uh, as like a major kind of cosmopolitan city. I assume there's a similar imbalance today. Absolutely. Um, London is, as you'd expect, the uh, the centre of uh, the migrant population within the UK. Uh, around a third of that 9.5 million people uh, live in London and two-thirds live in the rest of the country. Um, so the point there is, is definitely to note that um, immigrants or foreign-born population within the UK are not evenly distributed around the country. The foreign-born population within the UK is, of course, still increasing. Uh, in 2019, net migration, so that's the difference between the number of people moving to the UK uh, and leaving the UK, was around 270,000 people. But that was um, that 270,000 is from around 680,000 immigrants and around 410,000 emigrants. So the net migration figure of 270,000 shows the difference in the population caused by migration, but doesn't actually capture the extent to which there is sort of churn and movement in and out of the UK. There is a popular conception that immigration is increasing at a massive rate. This is not actually true. Uh, the year with the highest level of net migration to the UK was 2015, when the figure was 329,000. So it has fallen since then. That's actually not due to lower immigration per se. Immigration since 2015 has been fairly flat, it's been fairly stable. Uh, the reason why net migration has decreased since then is because there's been an uptick in emigration uh, and more people leaving the UK. Um, many of you might realise that the reason why 2015 uh, is important is it's the year before the um, Brexit referendum uh, and indeed as you'd expect since 2015 net immigration from the EU uh, has dropped. So. Um, net immigration to the UK from the EU was around 216,000 in 2015. It has dropped to about 49,000 in 2019. But that has been counteracted quite neatly by a rise in net immigration to the UK from non-EU countries, which was at around 154,000 in 2015 uh, and has risen to 282,000 uh, in 2019. If 
any of you uh, are particularly interested in these sort of statistics and you want to find out more and you want to see where we've got these from, these are all from Oxford University's Migration Observatory. To limit the scope of what would otherwise become a massively sprawling podcast, uh, we think it's important to draw a distinction between refugees and asylum seekers on one hand and economic immigrants on the other. Uh, And this is not to say that we don't care about refugees or asylum seekers. That is an important issue in its own right. Uh, But there are different debates and discussions uh, and arguments and stats to be to be put forward there. Uh, In the UK, as of 2019, again, the last year with uh, published stats, there were 133,000 refugees in the UK, 161 stateless persons and 62,000 pending cases. That means out of the total foreign born population of the UK, Uh, less than 1.5% are refugees or asylum seekers. Uh, And this pales in comparison to other countries like Turkey, for example, uh, which has 3.6 million refugees, uh, or countries neighbouring kind of war zones in the Middle East, such as uh, Lebanon, for example, uh, and Jordan, which also have a lot of refugees. Uh, The proportion of refugees in the UK um, relative to economic migrants is tiny, uh, and refugees also don't have the right to work in the UK. Um, What we want to focus on today is economic immigration or immigration which is not necessarily driven by fleeing war or famine or severe persecution but people that just want to come to the UK to better their quality of life. Um, Firstly, as we said, to limit the scope of the discussion to a manageable one and secondly, because economic migrants are are frequently targeted with a specific critique or a specific set of critiques uh, that they are damaging the economy, stealing jobs, stretching public services and so on. So for today's podcast, we'll be focusing on economic migrants, but definitely in the future, uh, we'll be returning to the issue of refugees and asylum seekers, particularly with regards to European Union policy. So when we're talking about migration, the impacts of migration, the effects of it, uh, and opposition to it, we can broadly separate the critiques into economic critiques and political ones. So to deal with the main economic critique first, uh, which is often put forward by by right-wing parties mostly, um, but also by by left-wing parties and left-wing politicians like Bernie Sanders, for example, uh, do migrants take jobs and do migrants lower the wages of the quote, uh, indigenous population. Yeah, and we, we've lumped these two together because the the critique of these arguments is, is basically the same thing. The argument that migrants lower wages is also effectively just a sort of slightly more nuanced version of the argument that migrants take jobs. The idea that migrants lower wages comes from a very basic understanding of where wages come from, of the supply and demand in labour markets. Imagine yourself as the boss of a company who's got a job opening and you go looking for people to fill that job opening. If there are uh, hundreds of people who apply, all of whom are well qualified, all of whom are able to do the job, and you're struggling to choose between them, when you then choose the person that you want to take the job and you go into negotiations about the wage with that person, you have the bargaining power in that particular situation. Uh, you can offer quite a low wage, and if that person says no, you can go to the next person and go to the next person and go to the next person until you find someone who's willing to work for that wage. Conversely, if you post your job advert and only one person who's qualified and able to do the job applies, when you then go into wage negotiations with that person, they have the negotiating power. If they don't like the wage you're offering, they can bargain you up or they can walk away, uh, and you basically have to pay them what they want. So the more people there are 
uh, available to do a particular job, the more people there are looking for jobs, uh, the lower wages tend to get pushed, or there's, there's downward pressure on wages. And if there are a relatively small number of people chasing a relatively large number of jobs, the opposite tends to happen, and wages tend to be driven up. So from that, you can see where the argument comes from, that if there are more people migrating to the country uh, and the population is rising, some of those people are obviously going to be looking for jobs. Many of those people, in fact, if they're economic migrants, uh, and the number one reason why people move to the UK is to look for work, uh, that means more people looking for jobs, and that should, according to this theory, put downward pressure on wages. The problem with this argument is that it's only looking at half of how markets work. As I said at the beginning, wages are determined by the supply and demand in labour markets, and this argument is only looking at the labour supply, not the labour demand. The much harder thing for people to get their heads around is the fact that the number of jobs available in an economy is not fixed. And here we can see why the migrants take jobs argument doesn't work either, which is that the number of jobs changes depending on the population. So, as a firm, you uh, make a certain amount of money, you make a certain amount of profit, depending on how much of your good or service, whatever it is you make, you sell. If there are more people buying whatever it is your product is, uh, and you decide you want to make, some, make more of it for that reason, you need to employ more people. So, as firms produce more, they employ more people and they make more job openings how much of the thing that they make or sell is bought or how much is demanded is going to uh, depend on a number of things but one key issue is population the more people there are in the country the more people there are buying the goods and services produced in this country so the supply side argument that more people looking for jobs uh, affects wages is true, but it's only half of the argument. The other half that happens simultaneously is that more people moving to an economy raises demand for goods and services. That means that firms expand production and produce more. That means that they employ more people and open up more job op opportunities. And so the net effect um, in pretty much every creditable macroeconomic study of the overall impact of migrants on wages is actually zero in a rather sort of underwhelming and disappointing conclusion. Um, migration doesn't have a massive effect on wages upwards or downwards. There is, however, a major caveat to this. So macroeconomic studies of the total impact on, of migration on wages tend to find results around pretty close to zero. Microeconomic studies that look at individual markets or individual jobs tend to find a much more varied uh, range of estimates as to the effect, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, uh, sometimes reasonably large, sometimes reasonably small. And the reason for this is that those two uh, effects of migration on wages, that supply side effect that pushes downwards and the demand side effect that pushes upwards, aren't necessarily evenly spread across different jobs, different professions and different markets. So while they balance out in the aggregate, if you look at one individual job, uh, sometimes that's not the case. And that's because migrants tend to cluster in particular professions. Um, Many of these have since become sort of racial stereotypes, but a lot of them are based in reality. For example, a disproportionate number of 
um, Eastern European migrants work in agriculture uh, compared to other ethnic groups among among the population uh, but they don't disproportionately eat agricultural products um, so the supply side impact of them is arguably larger than the demand side impact of them and so there is a possibility that migrants uh, reduce wages for some specific uh, workers and some specific professions but that is balanced out on the average by uh, rises in other professions and other markets. I guess another another counter-argument to this, was, which I saw in a UKP-style Twitter profile um, a few months ago, is that although migrants do come to the country and they do work here, they, they do kind of therefore generate money here, a lot of that money is not then spent in the UK economy, so it doesn't contribute to further kind of demand for goods and services and it doesn't contribute to uh, further job growth uh, but a lot of it is instead sent as remittances back to the country from which they they initially came so uh, in in the words of this account I think the money is leaking out of the UK economy at some point in the future we may well do a podcast about the effects of immigration on the countries that uh, migrants leave rather than rich countries that they tend to come to and then we'll talk about remittances in a very different light but there is a certain degree of truth to that critique that remittances migrants uh, sending money home to friends and family members in, in the country of their birth is from a cold objective uh, viewpoint of the uh, UK economy it is what economists would call a leakage it is money leaving the economy um, but the idea that this completely counteracts or somehow reverses the positive impact of immigration on the economy is just not true um, it's a very small percentage uh, remittances are very hard to measure but again going to the Oxford University's migration observatory their estimate for 2018 was that around 23 billion pounds was remitted out of the UK to other countries. Dividing that up among the 9.5 million foreign-born people living in the UK, that works out at about two and a half thousand pounds each. Now, unless the wages earned by those people are two and a half thousand pounds each, which I assure you they're not. Median wage in the UK is about 22,000 pounds. It is absolutely not true that all of these wages are being remitted home. Um, Foreign-born people in the UK do remit some money home, and that has all sorts of other interesting effects that we'll we'll talk about in another podcast, but that does not in any way counteract their impact on the British economy. I mean, to to preemptively talk about some of those, those impacts that we'll discuss in later podcasts, uh, even if you view it in a completely cold, cynical, calculating way, uh, remittances are still good for the UK economy in the long run uh, because the value of one day's work in the UK is perhaps the value of a month's work or, or several months' work uh, in other parts of the world. And therefore, the money remitted back to those countries is one of the, the best possible uh, mechanisms for poverty alleviation uh, in other parts of the world. And therefore, in the long run, it reduces the UK's foreign aid uh, spending. Uh, it creates prosperous economies for the UK to trade with. It is overall, in the long run, good for the UK, even if you view it in a purely cold, uh, calculating manner. To go on from the, the, the critique about migrants taking jobs and, and lowering wages, uh, and I guess to engage with the, the Schrodinger's migrant, which is simultaneously stealing the jobs and, and taking the benefits, um, there is also the critique that, that migrants are uh, taking up or using up 
all of the available welfare benefits in the UK. Uh, how much economic truth is there to that? There, there is spectacularly little truth to this. The demographic data is, is complex and hard to sort of explain quickly, so we'll tweet a uh, chart of it with this podcast. But uh, migrants to the UK are disproportionately of working age. Um, most economic migrants, because they have come looking for work, um, aren't therefore claiming unemployment benefits or other forms of benefit because of their inability to support themselves. They have come to earn a higher wage uh, and do so. And migrants are disproportionately between 16 and 64, um, fit, healthy and in work. And while, as happens to every everyone, occasionally migrants become unemployed and do claim unemployment benefit, um, there is a reason unemployment benefit exists. It exists so they are not just stricken the moment that happens and they can go on and find another job. Uh, migrants disproportionately pay into um, the public purse. The tax revenue that the government makes from the foreign-born population in the UK is far greater than the expense on them uh, in terms of benefits, but also in terms of public services. That does lead very neatly into another common critique of immigration to the UK, that migrants stretch public services, uh, that they that they use up uh, NHS services, that they need uh, more healthcare provision because they're more likely to suffer uh, from certain healthcare problems, uh, that they take up a disproportionate amount of the education budget because of the need to provide additional support for pupils who don't speak English as a first language, uh, that they uh, that they raise house prices, that they take up more council housing, and so on. Again, how much truth is there to this? The provision of public services you can think of in a similar sort of way uh, to the demand-supply difference in, in labour markets. The amount of public services demanded does depend on the population and, as you mentioned, depends on certain sort of characteristics of the population. And there is an argument there, uh, certainly, that having a large population means more public services are provided. Certainly, more children means we need more schools and more teachers. Uh, More people generally means more people to get sick means more hospitals, more doctors, more nurses, etc. And all the other public services too. But... Again, both sides of the equation are changed by immigration, and the extent to which public services exist and the extent to which the government has the money to provide public services depends on the amount of tax revenue they gain. And again, having more people, uh, especially if those people are disproportionately coming here for work and are disproportionately working, means uh, an increase in the tax paid to the government and an increase in the ability of the government to pay for those public services. Now, to a certain extent, there may be a problem that over the past decade or so, the quality of public services in the UK has not increased at the rate that people would like it to or has even decreased. And that has coincided with a large level of immigration. But the ability of the government to meet the demand for public services that has grown due to a growing population um, has been provided by the tax revenue paid by those migrants. And if there does exist a disparity between the demand for public services and the level, uh, the quantity and quality of those public services supplied, and that is a whole other podcast in itself, the blame for that lies not at the door of migrants, but at the door of the government that has not used that increase in tax revenue to provide those public services. Another critique which is by no means new, this is something that has been around since at least the Industrial Revolution, 
uh, is the the kind of Malthusian idea that there is a finite amount of land in the UK and that the more migrants come over here, the more forest will need to be slashed down and the more uh, green English hills will need to be paved over in order to make room for them. And therefore, the argument is effectively that migration is an ecological disaster for the UK. Right. And again, it's difficult to have a, a single statistic that sort of refutes this. I think the easiest way to approach that is, or the, the closest we can come, is to say that over the 20th century, or through the 20th century up to now, the UK's population has expanded uh, by about double, from about 30 million to about 67 million. Um, and the proportion of the UK land area that is built on is still only about 5.5%. Um, exactly how much of UK land is built on is, is sort of difficult to say in, in individual statistics. It's much easier to visualise with a map, so we'll tweet that out with the podcast as well. Um, the other um, refutation I would have for this is that when we talk about ecological impact, if we're actually if we actually care about the environment and we're not approaching this from a strange eco-nationalist viewpoint, what matters is the ecological damage caused by humanity to the entire planet. Dividing up um, ecological damage on one particular island or another doesn't really make much sense, and migration is merely a movement of people from one place to another the ecological damage caused by a person is not massively changed by the fact that they now live in the uk rather than somewhere else and so as far as we're concerned on a global scale the argument doesn't really make sense and another another refutation of of this argument that that migrants are paving over the uk or that we need to destroy the uk's wonderful uh, natural scenery in order to make room for them is that overwhelmingly migrants are are likely to come to major cities rather than to live in rural areas and in fact living in more concentrated urban populations is on the whole more ecologically friendly uh, than you know living outside of a city because you're pooling uh, resources and infrastructure uh, and all that kind of stuff which means that your environmental footprint is probably lesser if you're living in a city so on the whole uh, a migrant to the UK is statistically more likely to be ecologically friendly than an average UK resident. Absolutely, and this uh, is another point where the, the impact of migrants is dependent on policy and planning policy and the way in which towns and cities in the UK are built and making them more dense, uh, building upwards rather than outwards means we could very easily absorb a larger population without any uh, change to land use and I think that's another reason why we should have a a housing market podcast soon and we do seem to be missing quite an obvious point here because we've been talking really about the impact of migrants on the uk economy we haven't been talking about the impact of immigration on migrants themselves absolutely and there is a huge amount of evidence on this this is absolutely not up for debate that migration from poor countries to rich countries is absolutely fantastic in terms of the living standards of the migrants themselves. Uh, There are lots of reasons for this, Um, a full explanation is quite complex, but to put it as as concisely as I can, the income that you earn is dependent on the institutions, the organisations and the people around you. Um, In terms of your economic output, how much you produce, how much you earn, that is dependent on who is available around you to buy whatever it is you make and so being surrounded by 
wealthier people in the society in which you live means there is going to be more demand for whatever it is you make means you can make a higher income but your productivity as well is dependent on a huge number of economic um, institutions and really the difference between um, poor countries and rich countries and the reason why some countries are so much richer than the others is the quality of those underlying economic institutions and you can see that by the massive uh, increase in um, incomes that are created by simply picking someone up from a poor part of the world, placing them in a rich part of the world. And even if they do the same job, often they then earn much, much higher incomes and are that much more productive. It's not just a nominal effect that they get paid more. They produce that much more and have a much higher quality of living simply because of the geographical change to where they are. So it appears here that we've established on the whole, migrants do not steal jobs, they don't lower wages, uh, they don't raise house prices, they don't, you know, uh, leech off public services, uh, they don't disproportionately use welfare benefits, uh, they don't remit all their wages, they do spend quite a lot in the UK. Uh, But in all of these things, we've pointed out that there are effects in opposite directions, which tend to balance out as a net positive or as neutral. I guess one of the very common uh, critiques then, or one of the very common uh, proposals that people put forward is we're not anti-migration per se, but there are there are good migrants and there are bad migrants. We should select migrants more carefully uh, as per a what's often referred to as an Australian-style system so as to get the migrants who are most economically beneficial to the UK uh, and to lock out those who aren't. Why is that not something we should be doing and why why should we not be overly restrictive with our migration policy this is an interesting case of people a lot of people not having sort of consistent views of uh the way the world works across different uh, economic and political issues so there is a tendency for people on the left to think that the government needs more involvement in the economy and that if we could choose more carefully and more scientifically the right amount of different things to produce and the right amount of wages to pay to different people uh, we could create a much better working economy and the right-wing way of looking at the economy is that that's far too complex Uh, we can't possibly do that we'll just get it wrong and we need to leave these things alone Um, when it comes to migration and and choosing who should come into the UK or whatever country the roles tend to be swapped uh, and it tends to be quite a right-wing argument to say well we need to choose carefully uh, who we allow into the into the country and choose the right people who have the right skills um, that we have a lack of uh, in the UK economy and therefore we require more of and the argument and that's far too complex is for me one of the two major arguments against that that there are an extraordinary number of different jobs there are an extraordinary number of different markets Um, it's impossible for the government to be able to sit down and calculate at any given time what the appropriate number of extra plumbers that we need is, what the appropriate number of extra IT technicians that we need is, etc, etc, etc. Find those people, uh, allow them to enter the country. Um, It simply isn't feasible, uh, nor is it possible to know that number, um, because there are... Uh, new jobs opening up all the time as well. Um, Migrants, one of the main benefits of migrants that we haven't talked about is that there is plenty of evidence to suggest that 
a diverse mingling of people from different backgrounds and from different educational systems has a massive positive impact on improvements in technology and in science because people think in different ways have been taught different things uh, and that mingling creates innovation and invention and that's impossible to sort of um, preempt and structure and put numbers to the second argument i would say against that is that um, there are lots of reasons to choose certain migrants over others that don't have an objective economic basis on which skills there is a shortage of in the UK economy, but which are um, political reasons to bias, to discriminate and to favour certain migrants over others. Absolutely. And um, it's also worth pointing out that migrants by definition are those who are willing to uproot their lives and take risks and travel to a brand new country they've never been to before um, and try to make something of themselves and and this is therefore also reflected in how entrepreneurial migrants are in the UK um, according to the Centre for Entrepreneurs uh, a think tank uh, one seventh of UK companies have been founded by migrants uh, collectively responsible for 14% of British jobs 17.2% um, of migrants had launched their own businesses in the UK uh, compared to 10.4% of those who were born in the UK. Uh, so it's clear that as well as this, this confluence of different ideas and cultures and opinions creating a more entrepreneurial culture, um, migrants themselves, whether or not they are skilled, by virtue of the, the self-selection of being risk takers and innovators, are more likely to make a positive contribution to the economy. We've skimped on a fair bit of detail in that summary of the economic impact of immigration to the UK. Uh, if you do have any questions, please do get in touch with us. But in the interest of time, we should move on to the political arguments against uh, immigration. And there's a whole family of these arguments, but they're all broadly sort of subcategories of the argument that there is a certain culture to Britain and that immigration and having a large number of people come to Britain from other countries with other cultures um, and form a significant proportion of the population in Britain is going to change that culture um, for the worse. And as, as we said previously at the start of this podcast, uh, this is a fear that has existed uh, in England and in Britain more widely for, for a long time. Uh, obviously now when we talk about the United Kingdom it includes Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland but in the past there were very uh, there were very much English fears about the Welsh or the Scots or especially the Irish coming over and polluting English culture um, or, or damaging it or distorting it in some way um, and it's important to remember as we've said time and time again in our podcast that national identity is constructed and by constructed, we don't mean that it's fake or that it's not real or that it doesn't exist, uh, but that it is something which is constantly in flux, it is something that constantly evolves, that it changes over time. What is British identity today is not the same as British identity 30 years ago, is not the same as it was 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 years ago. And the fact that national identities change over time is not a bad thing in itself or inherently. 
that is just part of a process that happens in any country or in any society there are new influences and new cultural ideas and new norms and these are discussed and integrated uh, and assimilated or, or merged in various forms into the prevailing national identity i think what's more salient as a critique perhaps uh, is that some people would argue when migrants come into the uk they bring what are described as regressive uh, cultural attitudes uh, whether that's towards uh, women or people who are lgbt or other minorities uh, and that migrants coming over to the uk with those ideas is is dangerous there is perhaps a degree of truth to that but it's important to distinguish between um cultural differences that are simply different and cultural differences that might be problematic and there is certainly a tendency and this is not uh, necessarily a white British thing or a British thing at all this is something that happens all over the world in all, in all cultural groups there is a tendency to think of the way in which we do things in a particular cultural group as being better than others and to be um, suspicious of the way in which other people dress, the food they eat, the language they speak, uh, the religion they follow, whatever, um, without necessarily actually stopping and picking apart the different things that different cultural groups do or the different parts of different cultures that are problematic and that do cause um, distress to people because I'm not uh, arguing that there aren't any. But there is certainly a strange... Uh, fixation that a lot of people have with the idea of a sort of cultural oneness, the idea that there is an importance in all the people who live in a particular area or who live in a particular country doing really banal, normal, everyday things in the same way, uh, wearing the same clothes, eating the same food. Um, and this strange idea that sort of comes from that, that if new people arrive in a country, and start to do things differently, or even if the people who already live in a country start to do things differently, that there is a forced, enforced change on everyone. That if the culture changes, everyone has to do something differently. For example, um, vegetarianism has become much more prevalent in this country in recent years, uh, partly because a lot of South Asian migrants are vegetarian, partly because of environmental concerns that, uh, that a lot of people now have. That does not mean that we have to adopt a vegetarian culture and we all have to become vegetarian. We live in a liberal society for a reason, and those people that want to continue to eat meat can do, and those people that don't want to shouldn't be forced to. Um, and a lot of, I think, these critiques of immigration and of cultural change rest on this idea that we all somehow have to do things in a similar way and are easily solved by a liberal viewpoint that merely says, within reason, people should be allowed to do what they want. To deal with the other part of this this argument, the, the idea that immigrants bring with them regressive values, um, it's important to note this is not, or the, these values are not values which are particular to immigrant communities. The most high profile example I can think of this recently uh, is I think a year or two ago, uh, there were, were protests at school in Birmingham uh, by some Muslim parents from a South Asian immigrant background uh, who believed that the school was promoting gay values to their students. Uh, and of course, uh, it, it is a regressive idea to think that 
students should not be taught that this is something that is is acceptable or it's not something that should be allowed um but very interestingly katie hopkins who is kind of like the poster girl of english nationalism uh turned up to protest alongside uh that immigrant community and and she fully bought into their argument um and and likewise we have a whole a whole litany of um sexist and homophobic views put forwards by figures like tommy robinson again kind of poster boy of english nationalism uh and so it's completely untrue to say that these values are something that are particular to immigrant communities of course all cultures have certain views or certain viewpoints which are very problematic and very damaging and very prejudiced uh, against minorities uh, but those are not culturally specific viewpoints and they are not something that are necessarily found more more commonly in migrants than in people that are born in britain um, it is something that we should be concerned about but it is not something which is inherent to migration absolutely and at the heart of a lot of isms whether it's uh, or phobias whether it's racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, whatever, is a lack of knowledge of what people in another group are like, um, or a stereotyped idea of people in a group um, that then springs those sort of negative ideas about them. And we always trot out on this podcast the sort of long-term solution to this as dialogue, that if people meet in their everyday lives and come across and speak to uh, a vast array of different people from diverse different backgrounds across all spectrums of, of what makes a person a person then those views slowly die away as people realize that they're just not true and so if we're taking this sort of high horse approach of our migration policy should try to address homophobia and address racism well then we should have a migration policy that tries to create the most um, diverse society possible and actually I would say the the reason why in sort of survey data rates of homophobia and racism while I'm not saying they're not a problem tend to be lower in countries like the UK than other parts of the world is not because of some sort of inherent moral high ground of the British people but is a product of the diverse society that we have because of the high level of migration that we've historically had. And so arguing against migration from the point of view of defending against homophobia is not just mistaken, but entirely backwards. To, to build on this point that we've just put forwards, uh, I think it's worth looking at some, some data from the 2016 uh, Brexit referendum on, on UK membership of the EU uh, and interestingly an analysis of that data shows that the more uh, immigration an area had uh, the less likely it was to vote for leave and conversely um, the less immigration an area had or the less immigrants as a percentage of the local constituency population the more likely an area was to vote for leave and what this does seem to suggest uh, is that familiarity with with migrants or people from other countries actually makes people more accepting generally of migration and rather it's a perceived fear of migration whether or not you actually meet a lot of migrants on a daily basis uh, which drives the the idea that migrants are, are bad people or they're causing crime or that they're corrupting the country's culture um, and rather exposure to migrants shows that they are just normal people who have slightly different lifestyles um, but are not fundamentally different or fundamentally bad. 
Um, what that same data set or study showed, though, which is very interesting, is that whilst a higher uh, percentage of foreign-born population in a constituency uh, made a constituency more likely to vote remain, a higher rate of increase uh, of migration in the last 20 years made a area more likely to vote for leave. So it does appear that whilst people uh, do not have an inherent antipathy towards migrants and once they, they know them and they, and they see that they're just normal people, uh, they have no animosity towards them or less animosity towards them. Uh, very rapid and sudden changes which people haven't had time to, to psychologically process uh, does in the short term seem to lead to more of a backlash. Right, there is something of a Kuznets curve of racism that at very low levels of immigration, uh, it's not seen as a problem. It's not seen, you know, if immigration is not something that happens here, it's not something people are worried about. When immigration first starts, most people tend to be scared of it, and that's when you get the highest levels of backlash. But as immigration continues and as an immigrant population establishes itself, um, the rate of uh, opposition to immigration falls away again. What we mean by the word established is quite interesting um, because there are there are obviously different models of, of nationhood or nationality. Uh, you have racial uh, nationality or nationhood, which is based upon uh, membership of a, of a specific genetic uh, background. You have cultural nationalism or cultural national identity, which is based upon uh, the adoption of a certain set of cultural behaviours and beliefs. Uh, you have civic uh, nationalism or civic national identity, which is based not upon the adoption of certain cultural beliefs and practices, uh, but merely a very broad commitment to a certain set of political liberal principles like uh, tolerance and democracy and the rule of law. Um, And when we talk about immigrants establishing themselves, one of the key questions is, should they have to assimilate in the cultural sense? Uh, so Norman Tebbit in the 1980s very famously came up with what he called the cricket test uh, of whether immigrants had properly assimilated. Uh, and the cricket test was if if an immigrant, rather than supporting England in a cricket match, supported India or Bangladesh or Pakistan or the West Indies or whatever their, their kind of cultural background was, then they had not properly assimilated. Um, is it an issue whether, in, in terms of whether immigrants assimilate or not? Should they have to act in British ways and love queuing and fish and chips and tea uh, and all the rest of it? Or is it enough for immigrants to just buy into the basic liberal principles of the country's body politic? I would uh, critique your choice of examples there, given that you are probably the most assimilated Asian in the entirety of Britain and you don't like fish and chips, tea or queuing. Um so perhaps uh, a better list might be a tweed jacket, uh, a union flag umbrella, and a degree from Cambridge University. <laughs> Again, I think the answer to this is, is a complex one that, that comes back to putting aside any sort of bias towards our own culture or discrimination and, and distinguishing between those cultural differences that do actually have a material impact that do cause problems for the people that do break the harm principle uh, and those that don't and to realize that the vast majority of them don't and that uh, the language someone speaks the food they eat the religion they practice the clothes they wear um, the way they decorate their house um, is entirely their own individual choice and actually part of the reason why it's pretty stupid to involve those things in politics and divide people up into groups that that act differently in those ways is there is just as much 
difference in individual taste within cultures as there is between cultures. Yeah, and there's often this critique of, of ghettoization uh, amongst immigrant communities that they come to this country and they don't assimilate or they don't integrate and they just remain their own narrow, closed-off niche which refuses to interact uh, in, a, in a reasonable way with other groups in the population um, and not to tumble down a eat-the-rich rabbit hole. Uh, but in the anthropological sense, uh, you could also point to a very n- narrow, uh, sealed membership uh, niche of, of very wealthy people who went to Eton and then went into politics uh, and dress in a certain way and eat in a certain way and believe certain things in a way which is quite different from the majority of the population or the average of the population. Um, and the the notion that we should force those people to assimilate uh, is as ridiculous as the notion that we should force migrants uh, to culturally assimilate uh, in terms of their tastes and um, banal everyday behavior such as the food they eat and what they wear and what languages they speak. Uh, it's not inherently damaging to the fabric of the country, again, as long as people buy into those basic precepts of democracy, the rule of law, tolerance, and so on. Absolutely. I, I do think there is uh, some degree of truth in the argument that it's it's unhealthy to have a society in which different cultural groups keep themselves themselves and there is a lack of mixing we've talked about dialogue and the importance of diversity but I think your example is a very good one that that, that critique can be leveled at a huge number of groups not just immigrant groups uh, and to put sort of the example of my own life experience on this I grew up in Devon um, and moved to East London and have lived in East London for years now and work there. And whilst that argument is usually levelled against the Bangladeshi uh, community of East London, and to some extent there is a degree to which the Bangladeshi community of East London keeps itself to itself and doesn't interact with the groups, uh, and a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of East London Bangladeshis who have this sort of fear of the rest of the country that they won't be accepted, that um, they're surrounded by sort of uh, prejudice and racial hatred and Newham and Tower Hamlets is sort of the one little safe bubble. The same unhealthy bubbling and view of the rest of the country exists in Devon. There are an extraordinary number of people who live in Devon who seem to think that the rest of the country is covered in crime and pollution and funny looking people um, and it's all a dangerous place to go. Um, and that is an unhealthy mindset, but it's not at all. Um, specific to migrant groups. I do think another important point to make here is that uh, this so-called ghettoization is is often not uh, something which is voluntary on the part of migrant groups, but is is the product of very broadly racism in the society that they emigrated into and a refusal to accept them outside of of a very certain or, or narrow area. Uh, and escalating up to the point of racist abuse and racist violence and even racist murder. Um, this is obviously very common in the 1970s uh, with with white nationalist groups in the UK. Um, this is, I think, nearly well, just after the 44th anniversary of the murder of Gurdip Chagar in Southall, uh, obviously from a Punjabi background, and uh, also in the 1970s, the murder of Atlab Ali, uh, a Bangladeshi immigrant, uh, in East London. So of, often the lack of assimilation uh, or, or the so-called ghettoization of migrant populations in the UK is a result of opposition to migration um, rather than a lack of willingness of migrants to, to integrate. And that's a good example of something I think we've come across a few times in this discussion of the, the political issues of, of immigration is that actually there are real issues here 
but they are caused by the treatment of migrants rather than migrants themselves. Um, and that was true in the economic arguments when we talked about um, public services and the, the lack of provision of public services. And it's true in the political arguments when we talk about the, the frictions created by migration are not the fault of the migrant, but the fault of the way those tr- migrants are treated. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, if you have any comments, critiques or suggestions for future podcasts, uh, you can contact us at our email, uh, contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can visit our website, theviolet.net. Thank you and see you next time.